Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. My special guest in this episode is producer, composer, and DJ Chris Bangs. A hugely inspirational and pioneering figure in the British underground dance scene since the 80s, he is the man who coined the phrase acid jazz and co-produced Paul Weller's single Above the Clouds, a fan favourite for so many of us. Chris is also on the eve of releasing his new album with Mick Talbot from the Style Council, so we'll talk all about that too. Let's get into it. Chris Bangs, thanks for joining me. Salud. Where in the world do we find you right now, then? I'm currently in a place called Mont Duquesa, which is near La Duquesa, Manilva, Costa del Sol. Oh. 29 degrees, beautiful sunshine. Well, I won't tell you what it's doing here in, the, in Sutton in Surrey. It's pissing down with rain at the moment as you've come to Oh, okay. Place, right? Well, I know, Sutton really, <laughs> I know Sutton really well. I'm, I was born and raised in Kingston most of my life. Ah, okay, cool. Sutton's Camps every Tuesday uh, was one of one of my first kind of jazz funk nights out when I was about uh, 18. What came first then? Because obviously there's there's you as a DJ, there's you as a producer, there's you as a composer. What was first on that list? My sort of musical history started when I was kind of 15 and I started trying to play bad rock guitar. I mean, I didn't try to play bad rock guitar, but I did try to play rock guitar and it was terrible. <laughs> So um, I was into bands, sort of hippie prog bands, because I went to school in Kingston and everyone there was into like Pink Floyd. But I was always, I had to go and find the bands that no one else knew. I've always been like that as a DJ and musician, whatever. So I was more into bands like the Pink Fairies, Gong, Hawkwind, Freaked Out, psychedelic rock and i kind of drifted from that i discovered uh santana caravanserai and billy cobham spectrum 
which had a guitarist called Tommy Bolin who used to play with Deep Purple. And so that's how I found my way into that. And that was kind of jazz rock fusion. And then the jazz rock fusion became jazz fusion. The jazz fusion led to Stevie Wonder when my, my friend, really good friend Toby Walker, who runs a brilliant soul website called soulwalking.co.uk biggest in the world but very little known in this country massive in america but yeah he was um leading me into sort of other kinds of music he was into the beach boys and elton john but really into soul and he bought me for my birthday talking book stevie wonder and i was like yeah this is my thing then i bought curtis mayfield back to the world a few other kind of things in that vein donny hathaway live and all of a sudden my bad rock guitar was you know, I couldn't even begin to think about playing like like Dean Parks or Jeff Beck or whoever. So I pretty much stopped being a musician and started buying records. And as I got more and more into soul music, I was buying more and more kind of dance floory, Casey and the Sunshine Band or Corner Gang, that kind of stuff. Started up a mobile disco when I had so many records. It's, I bought a pair of decks to have in my bedroom and I thought, well, hang on, I'm, I'm nearly a DJ. I always wanted to play out. I couldn't play out my guitar because I wasn't good enough and I didn't I couldn't understand the kind of changes and musicianship that was involved to do that so started DJing that's uh, a mobile DJ and I did that I used to go out drive out a little old Ford Anglia 1964 Ford Anglia called Flattery because it wouldn't get me anywhere <laughs> um, so, so I'd drive to a gig think I'm not going to drink tonight I'd better not drink tonight so then I'd drink about you know have many and end up sleeping with all my mobile disco gear stuck in the back of this Ford Anglet. Somehow I never got robbed or attacked or whatever. And a few years later, I think it was early 78, I got a chance to audition for a nightclub in Harrow, uh, northwest London called Bogarts. So I went up, auditioned there, got the job as their resident warm up DJ five nights a week. So I was driving from New Malden, where I was living, to Har- North Harrow. Five times a week there and back. We've heard about um, Bogarts. Bogarts has come up on the podcast before through Gary Crowley. Yeah, really? Gary yeah. Gary used to do the Tuesday night a little bit later. It was a little bit earlier than that. Um, Tuesday night when I when I started there was roller disco, <laughs> which I used to do. And um, Brilliant. We had a, <laughs> they hired in these terrible old sort of metal-looking skates every week. And people would go around who hadn't got a clue, including me, and hacking their dance floor to bits. <laughs> this really nice wooden dance floor. It got ruined in about... Five weeks, so they stopped doing it. Um, <laughs> but um, we, we had a slowest section, which I used to call Feels on Wheels. That was my favourite part of the night. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I mean, it's fair to say this takes off, right? And you've, But you've always been somebody who likes to find those hidden gems. Not necessarily everything you're playing is mainstream. You're kind of somebody that's very underground with it, with your styles and your tastes at times. And, and Paul's very much like that. And we'll talk about Mr. Weller in a second as well. But you're introducing people to, to new sounds, I guess, was part of the buzz of this as well, right? I started playing jazz when I first saw Paul Murphy at this little club in London called The Horseshoe. It was an upstairs room. He played, I think, the night, first night I went, there was about 11 or 12 people in there and he's playing all these we called it hard jazz funk at the time there was there wasn't a, a term for it it was earlier than when he he did say i don't know what you know about paul but one of my biggest influences as a dj to be fair you know the one who, who persuaded me that you could play a proper jazz record in a club to people who weren't necessarily sitting at home listening to miles davis albums they they would dance to a record if it had a beat if it had the groove you know that that would 
let you drop jazz stuff into a, a set rather than just the kind of jazz fusion-y, jazz funk stuff, which had been the mainstay of the early 80s kind of club scene, really. So Paul had kind of led me in, into the idea that you could play, rec- you know, he played a, almost a whole evening of records, and I probably knew three or four of them out of maybe five hours, four or five hours. And so I became a lot more exper- experimental rather than playing what other DJs were playing. I'd always been a bit of a bargain bucket charity shop, junk shop, second-hand record shop kind of collector, never having had a load of money or whatever. And but in those days, I mean, records that um like Priceless now, like um, Bobby Matos, Latin Soul Theme, I bought in a, a shop by Kingston Station for a pound. In those days, you could properly just, because there was no internet, there was no discogs, you went into a second-hand record shop and these people, if it wasn't by Hendrix or Floyd or whatever, they, they, did, they had no idea what it was worth. So you could really find records in those days for silly money, you know. So, so yeah, I always like finding my own tunes. So even if I've just got a record and I'm really into it, I'm much more likely to play it if it's one I've found. Particularly, I used to buy any any record with a kind of Latin title. So, you know, I ended up with things as diverse as uh, Cliff Richard kind of Latin and Edmundo Ross and, and really, you know, terrible. Legendarily, I found an album called Mambo Along a Max by Max Bygroves, but it doesn't actually exist. But I did manage to convince a few people at the time that it did. <laughs> and if, if you if you knew me, I mean... I was once described in a magazine as the Eric Morecambe of Clubland, or 80s Clubland, to be more specific. So my idea would be play a really serious record, play it next to something not so serious, play it in a non-serious way, and then people, rather than thinking, oh, this is a bit heavy, or it's a bit dark, or it's a bit long, or they just go, oh, yeah, I like this, I can dance to it. And that's always been my philosophy, you know, to take a little bit of a hell of a lot of music scenes, because I've got a very, even now, I've still got a very sort of diverse taste in in what I like, you know. Still massive Hendrix fan. I still listen to the Soft Machine and 60s Soul and and you name it, you know. Let's talk about Mr. Weller. So when was it you first discovered Paul Weller's music? Was it the Jam, the Style Council? Were you a fan of either of those bands? I mean, obviously I knew the Jam, but I was never what you would have called a mod or a Jam fan at that time. And really my first big introduction to him came with Have You Ever Had It Blue? I was on uh, a lot of sort of mailing lists because I I was working in this club. I got sent it by Polydor and what's this then? Stuck it on. I thought, yeah, I like this. I used to DJ a lot with Giles Peterson, who's well-known jazz DJ now, does lots of radio and plays all over the world. And we used to run our own gigs together. We both got it the same week. We used to ring up each other several times a week and go, yeah, yeah, what you got? What you wish new? What you heard? Because he's another inveterate digger. We both got sent that. Said we can play that, can't we? Yeah, yeah. Let's play it. Let's play it. So we we had a bit of a philosophy where we worked together. If I found a record in a charity shop or wherever, I'd immediately try and buy him another one, or at the very least, I'd tell him about it. He'd go and get a copy, and if we both had it, we'd go. What do you think of this? And we we had what we call the A list, right. which there weren't many records went onto the A-list. The A-list is a, a guaranteed dance floor smash. So we had a lot of records that would have been kind of, I don't know whether you want to call them northern or mod, it depends what part of the country, but a lot of those things have been played before. We had a huge back catalogue of 60s Blue Note, 70s Blue Note, Prestige and all those labels to delve into. And anything we could find that we could kind of working from the side that would help modernise it a bit or make it diverse, we tried to do. And Paul Murphy, who I mentioned earlier, was sort of very instrumental in the whole absolute beginners thing. And that 
lent a lot of people and a lot of clubbers and DJs and whatever to start creeping a bit of weekend with Tracy Thorne or uh, those kind of bands, you know, who just on the edge of sort of used to play at the wag on a Monday or Blue Rondo a la Turk. And there are a few of them who kind of crept out of futurist, if you like, and, and become a bit more sort of jazzy and blue in what they did. So it was a really interesting time. We built up our own crowd, both played separately, both played together quite a lot. And we'd try and coordinate what we played so if you went to one of my gigs or you went to one of his gigs you'd hear that one that one that one and that one and the same at the other one then all the djs or all the punters or whatever go home and go oh yeah have you heard that oh yeah yeah giles play at his gig oh yeah man i've got to get that you know it's a philosophy i learned from a really well-known jazz funk dj called chris hill he used to play at the gold mine he started the royalty he's was the first DJ to play at the Case to Weekenders, the original ones in 79. He pretty much, he was, I hate the godfather, but he was kind of the godfather to so many DJs who come along from Pete Tong to Carl Cox, you know, with Paul Oakenfold, whether they play house or funk or whatever. Chris Hill was kind of the one who you came in through pretty much or one of the people he worked with. They used to have a group of DJs that he kind of coordinated called the Mafia. You'd be in a bizarre little wine bar in, in Steeple Bumpstead or some non-existent place on the far end of the, and he'd come out on a Thursday night and the resident DJ there would advertise it and it'd go on the raid, local radio and boom, boom. And all of a sudden you've got 200 people mostly driving 30, 40, 50 miles to get to this place just appearing because they knew there'd be no one else in there it wasn't like going into kingston town center you know they'd, they'd have a, a soul they tried a few soul nights in there but it was soul with a broken bottle in your head if you're not lucky kind of night <laughs> which was was the, the one thing i loved about that whole time it was before the acid thing but it was smiley faces everywhere you know it was you were smiling on snake bite if you like everyone was into the same music they were all there for the same reason to have a laugh to dance to hear some much more sort of eclectic music than you'd hear in your local gaff of what whatever flavor it would be you felt like a, a bit of a brotherhood a little he called it the family chris hill and it, it did work like that you know you got to know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people this music sounds that you're playing as well sounds right up Paul Weller's street, to my mind, in terms of the, the end of the, the style council, the stuff he was digging throughout that that band's period as well. Did he turn up to any of your DJ nights that you're aware of, Mr. Weller? Uh, he didn't. I met Paul again through Giles Peterson. I was doing an album when Giles started his own label called Talking Loud. I'd been doing the demos for Acid Jazz for Galliano, and he signed him up for a massive money deal, which I think was 5000 or something, to record, produce everything. Even in those days, you know, this was in 92 or something, it was absolute buttons for a major label album. You know, they probably spent close to that on making the cover. <laughs> but we had to make this record, and so we were pulling in lots of favours. One of the favours, I don't, I don't know how he did it, but we managed to pull in Roy Ayers to come in on a couple of tracks to play for 300 quid or some pittance, you know, really. And um, he came in, he had, we had an amazing day. There were people fighting to come and kind of sit in the control room. And one of them who came along was Paul, who I hadn't met before. And he was like, just sitting there quietly. And, oh, yeah, yeah. We were recording in this brilliant space called Joe's Garage in Clapham. And it's an old bike repair workshop. And upstairs, it had a stone flag floor. And it was not much better than the Nissan hut, really. It was a kind of brick-lined metal hut with a corrugated, uh, probably asbestos roof. Probably we're lucky to get out of there. But <laughs> it, it had this, it just had this sound. It just sounded 
old. I can't explain it. You know, if, if you wanted to record Congress, someone had to go in the kitchen, we'd sit some mics up there because the, the room was just like this kind of barn. You know, there's so many great records. You, you kind of, people call them, used to call them garage records because they were just recorded in this horrible space, you know, totally unlike, you know, if you bought a Sam Cooke album or something, you know, it would be all kestrel and recorded in Hollywood. But, um, had a really sort of junky dated kind of sound. And um, so that's why we did it there. And Paul came there and he was kind of, yeah, I like this sort of production idea. He'd almost finished his first album and he said, I've got one or two tracks still to do to finish it off. Do you fancy coming in? I said, yeah, yeah, why not? You know, so I went to Solid Bond with a bag of records. Might have had a shaker with me or something exotic (laughs) like that. But essentially, Solid Bond was a uh, at Marble Arch, absolutely wonderful stone room drums, 50 guitars, pianos, every instrument, you know, Wurlitz, as you name it. He had a book of lyrics and he just pulled that out. He said, I've got a couple of ideas of, of lyrical stuff. And so I got a record out of my bag and I said, well, I bought a beat for you. that do. Paul is very Mr. Snap decision, you know. He doesn't mess about. He's no, yeah, no, no, which is brilliant. You know, for someone like me, it's it just makes my life much simpler. Drum beat, a conga loop, and a dr- little drum fill, which comes in the middle. And then he said, okay, let's work something out. So I suggested a guy called Kenny Burke, who was a bass player, who um, had a, a very musical style. He was a funk player, but more musical in the way, like someone McCartney was, who I knew Paul liked. So rather than it being sort of funk, 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 it was kind of swinging and melodic so we worked out a bass line and then paul has got steinways he's got hammonds he's got duh, duh, duh. so what do we use for a keyboard a little casio keyboard you could get in argos for about 80 quid <laughs> but he goes no we use that for the demo that's all right we'll just work it out yeah all right so of course that's what stayed and i spent Weeks after that, no, no, we've got to redo those keys. He goes, no, they're fine, they're fine, fine. We worked out a, a kind of rough song structure. He worked out his his chordal parts, and then we sat and I, I sing badly from my days in a band, but I kind of sang this bass bass rhythm. And he goes, oh yeah, I can play that. Do, do, do. Worked out something like that, and that was it. That was pretty much. The only thing that, that changed after that was we put in a middle eight and I got Paul to record a lot of guitars, not specifically rhythm parts, just kind of noodles, I used to call them. One of which was that at the beginning, which is turned into a real hook, but it was just a little throwaway thing that he did. So he went out, Marble Arts, I think he went out, got coffee, pizza. I said, give me a couple of hours. So I sampled up loads of little vocal ad libs and all the guitars worked out a structure that kind of worked as a song to my ears anyway obviously missing the middle eight which i mentioned because i was working it all on a computer paul as so he a was at that, he was at that yeah i was gonna say at that time he was very analog right he was very analog except he had a digital my first digital tape recorder i'd ever worked with so he had a i think he had a 48 track twin 24 but it just gone digital it was the 80s you know that was like the new thing that everyone wanted and it, it made it a bit kind of crispy sounding for my ears but you know as long as as long as um the sort of part was you know he always had like um he used this lovely guild acoustic guitar for some of the parts i had a little studio later and i'd have a, a mic like this one i'm using now which i got off amazon for like 80 quid or something but he'd have a you know oh this has come from abbey road and you know pp arnold sang backing vocals on whatever with it you know all oh, right okay it was kind of live within the computer context until we had what Paul had put together in terms of a verse and a chorus, and that's at the point when we started printing stuff onto tape. We'd gone from sort of demoing up, up an idea into laying the whole thing out onto tape, and then that was it. That arrangement's in stone. In those days, now with a computer, you go, oh, yes, 
double the chorus or but then you you just had to go with, with what it was and as i said he's a very sort of instant guy so he, he would in the second he likes something that's it that's it there's no change in it so he worked out this middle eight played it in on acoustic piano and said uh, i've written the part i'll go and sing it so before he went into vocal he used to smoke fags in those days so uh, so i said what are you doing he said well it goes, if I have a fag right before I go into my vocal, it makes it sound rougher. He always wanted that sort of grainy, coarse sound <laughs> in his voice, which, you know, is one of the best bits in it. So it made a lot of sense. So that's how it all come together. Brendan, who was kind of producing the rest of the album, came in when we did the mix down at Bucks Fizz's old studio. And it was actually Paul's birthday that day. And we got a little bit silly, all of us. Went down the pub for a few hours, stayed up till silly o'clock and kind of finished off everything except the mix which the engineer went back to the next day but um yeah it was it was a, a bit of a chance meeting and a very casually sort of thrown together thing and at the time it was his um his least successful single ever i've got it here so i've got the cd single here above the clouds yeah. and they say this is go discs which such an amazing amount of material came out on that label with Paul and without Paul actually thinking about it. But yeah, Paul was you know, back on top. That first debut album, that solo debut album is an incredible piece of work. But Above the Clouds is a song that's loved by so many people. So many people have mentioned that on this podcast. Yeah, well, it's it's not one of his slap bang kind of in your face ones, is it? It's just, I saw a clip of him. I haven't seen him live for two or three years now, but um, I saw he, he did it on his recent tour and it just sounded brilliant. You know, it just, it's such a simple little piece. The lyrics are, are direct and clear and because he, he had the lyrics before the song came about. So he, he'd written it almost like a poem, you know. So the music just literally worked around what he'd done rather than the other way around. So rather than a lot of times now, particularly if you're a producer and you're working with Beyonce or someone, you go, wait, wait, right, sing on that. And that's it. So they have to kind of, okay, it's all in one flat key. So they just kind of sing in a flat key and they move it about and doing a few effects. But that literally was kind of built around the, the lyric and the, the melody ideas that he had from his little notebook of, of lyrics and stuff. Nice. Wow. Well, it's, yeah. A, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing song. I heard recently, I heard, um, I think it was when Paul was talking to Eddie on the modcast and he talks about you and he said he'd wish you'd worked with you more. He said he couldn't quite work out why that was the only track you'd done together. Well, straight after I've been working with him, the first thing I did was I had a band I was producing for Circa called Kiss of Life. Didn't do very well, but I got Paul to come in and play on one of the tracks as has kind of returned the favour a little bit. He said, what do you want? I said, do you know Jeff Beck looking for another pure love with Stevie Wonder? And it's literally just noodles. Same word again. It's just, there's no rules. It's just whatever, man. Just, you know, play what you like. He played on that. And from making that album and getting it signed and released, I got enough money for a publishing deal. So I thought, I'm going to buy a studio, make my own studio. So for 18 months or whatever it was straight after that, I just literally submerged myself into, when I say building, I mean, I was bricklaying and putting down soundproof flooring, which turned out to be a complete waste of time because I was in a boatyard called Tag's Boatyard near um, Thames Ditton. And I made it what to me was the best soundproofing I could do. What I didn't know was on the other side of my live room was about an eight foot high metal winch, which I used to 
crank the boats out of the river. <laughs> so, we, so we'd be doing a vocal session. All of a sudden, it'd be <laughs> and these huge, great noises. So when I say soundproofing, it was kind of ish. Um, but yeah, it, that was my new toy. It's, it's what I'd always wanted. Really, was was my own space because I had, I had my, as I say, I used to go out with a, a sampler called an MPC, which the hip hop boys used to use, which had a load of pads. So sampling drum loops and beats and all that sort of stuff. I played keyboards with two fingers, two fingers, and then another two fingers makes a chord. You know, I had my chord book. I had my sort of Stevie Wonder albums. To, what's that called? Oh, a bit like that. Or so that would be how I'd work. It was very sort of piecemeal, and I'd go. To to someone's home taking in you know bags and bags of records and equipment and I thought this has got to stop and I was getting loads of remix work and stuff on the back of uh, another I did another couple of projects in the Galliano album for Talking Loud which did pretty well and that was a, a good time for me as a producer but it was too I spent too much time traveling and not enough time making music so when I got the chance Yes. So that's what I did. It was a mile and a half from my house, sandwich shop 200 yards down the road, a pub 100 yards down the road, the river 50 yards. What else do you want? Now, look, some of this music that you were creating at that time is with a very special friend of Paul's and of the podcast, Mr. Mick Talbot. I'm guessing your first connection with Mick was through that time, the acid jazz period, the style council, was it around that time? Yeah. Well, it was... um doing the first Galliano album at this studio we mentioned, and um, we got a lot of really top-notch musicians in on favours, and Mick was one of them. And he'd come in, he played this road stuff, hired a road team, and it was like, whoa, what is this? As I said, I was just setting up my own studio, and I said, Mick, do you fancy doing a little bit for me on my new album I was doing, which was um, the first solo album I did for acid jazz as the quiet boys and he came and did 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 that so through the same connection was how i met paul and a little bit later on when i sat in my own studio i made my own album for acid jazz called bosch and i'd finished that i did it i think it was 21 days recording the whole thing like that i just rang mick up i said do you fancy doing an album mate pretty much like that and he was like yeah all right then so um he used to come over to my boatyard in thames denton I had a, a road and good synths and that, but not a Hammond. But, you know, we worked our way around with a few samples and that's how we started. The Yarda Yarda was, was the first thing we did, which was a kind of UK jazz funk, jazz funk, I hate that phrase, but that kind of genre for a little label called Too Cool over here. And the Americans heard it and they said, Do you know what, we can turn this into something in America. And that's when we licensed it onto them. They said, could you change it a little bit here and there, which wasn't so great in the end. But um, we started it at first and that's how Soundscape started. I mean, a few albums in the late 90s, uh, 2000, a few albums from both of you. Why do you like working with Mick? What's the good about Talbot? He likes my tea. <laughs> um, <laughs> We've got the same pretty strange sense of humour. Yeah, I mean, look, he's a fantastic musician. For me, that's the best combination I can have is what I do with someone who really knows their way around whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. Because then I can hear what they're doing. I can go, yeah, that's brilliant. Or if you're doing that, why don't I come up with this or whatever? And so it's a very, very natural way to work. And we just found we got on and we ended up doing project after project. And how many of these projects are available to hear now in, in the sense of, because I think a lot of people's music discovery these days is through Spotify, through Amazon Music, those yeah. kind of things. Are they licensed on there? Can we, can we stream your material together? 
Yeah, our whole back catalogue has now been put on Spotify. We did a multi-million dollar 15-album deal with Acid Jazz, <laughs> um, which, as you can imagine, wasn't that much. Um, but, yeah, so if you, you can either buy them from Acid Jazz's Bandcamp page or if you just want to listen, they're all on Spotify. So if you search for Yada Yada, that's Y-A-D-A, Y-A-D-A, or Soundscape UK, you'll find them all. Or even better, you can search for Chris Bangs and Mick Talbot, something else, the single, or the fantastic new album, which I haven't plugged yet. Mick Talbot. Mickey, Mickey boy. Yeah, I'm not too bad. Hey, look, we had to get you both here together to talk about this lovely new album. Um, I've had this little sneak preview here, this little seven-inch. Here we are. Look at this, look at this. Um, Little seven-inch, Wiggle Wiggle and something else. Tell me about this. So obviously you guys have worked together a lot over the years. What brought you back together again to to create new music, Chris? Well, funny enough, it was a royalty check. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We we mentioned earlier that um, we'd done multitudinous different versions of our material for the Americans. It was so successful that the label recorded for Instinct went bust. So um, we had to try and track down any royalties we'd made or any money we made, and it kind of never happened for about 10 or 12 years. And all of a sudden, as I was working with Dean at Acid Jazz, putting this deal together for all my back catalogue stuff, which included all the stuff I'd done with Mick, he said, we found the company who put it all out in New York. And I said, oh, great. They put me in touch with their royalties department, who absolutely absolutely brilliant and all of a sudden we got i think it was nearly eleven and a half thousand dollars come through out of nowhere so we went to the pub no we didn't <laughs> um, anyway we, we kind of divvied up whatever was owed and i said in a bit of a mickey rooney kind of judy garland moment i said mick look we've got this money here let's make an album you know rather than them let's do a show it was let's make an album i couldn't tell you the exact date but i think it was 21 or 22 years since we'd worked together mick is that right yes i think it probably was something like 20 years yeah i just again i just i like moving for some reason and i just moved somewhere set up my own studio got this money and i said to mick let's do a project so he came over to my little uh little bedroom studio which is cozy <laughs> uh, it looks a bit i don't know if you've ever been to the hit factory but the, that was like the hit factory compared to i've now got a studio inside a, a, a my wardrobe essentially <laughs> um i've got no speakers anymore i've got one little microphone i've got a pair of headphones but um and we're going to record everything over a pair of tin cans with a bit of string i don't know if you ever did that when you were a kid but it, it will have that yeah, well, it'll have that retro sound that, you know, we like. So um, when you came back together, what did you do? You have in mind that this was going to be an album. Did you have tracks and thoughts in your head of how it would sound or songs written out, composed? What was the deal? Or did you just collaborate in a studio and make it up as you went along and see what happened? Well, I think I got a load of beats and, and kind of rhythm stuff together and a playlist of uh, influences on Spotify, shall we say. Mick came over for a day. And I think we did 12 or 13 tracks in in eight hours, kind of roughing them down and just chucking the ideas down, which I, I then sort of edited up a bit. And we said, ah, we can redo them later. And in classic, as I mentioned from Paul earlier, you know, he was like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And we tried to keep the same mentality with what we were doing. We tried to get a sort of live ambience. So we use technology that exists within my computer software where you can record into a live space. I don't understand the technical thing, but uh, yeah, you created the ambience of um, 
nightclubs and uh, studios so that we felt like we were in a real space. But I suppose this time round, after a 20-year break, we realised a lot of the stuff we'd done in the past was heavily influenced by 70s music. And I think the difference with this one is probably it's more influenced by 60s. But it's the same sort of ethos and uh, it's all about fun and not taking yourself too seriously and having something that will make people's feet or their heads move, you know, and their hearts as well, hopefully. Yeah, and their hands, yeah. to their wallets. <laughs> to their wallets. <laughs> or, to, or, or to their Apple Pay clicks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, I mean, Mick, we've talked before about how the instrument of choice for you, it's not the world's most convenient, right, in terms of carrying these things around. And am I right in thinking on the album, so there's piano, there's Hammond, and there's Wurlitzer on there, is that right? Yeah, amongst other things, but there's a, there's a mixture of all sorts. I mean, some of it was, uh, we did a second day at my mate Ernie McCones and uh, most of my old treasured furniture type keyboards which are large are housed there and he keeps them in good uh, shape so that's great and they're not going uh, rusty or dusty so we did use some of the real deal I did use a few little things like uh, those ubiquitous Nord keyboards you see everywhere the red ones that nearly everyone uses and they're quite a handy thing you know and you can just knock down your ideas with them they're a bit like a kind of Swiss army knife of uh, keyboards for me really yeah. so they've got all the organic ones in a sort of small easy to carry package so I, I did dabble with a bit of that and also yeah. I mean some guest appearances as well so that, so there's other musicians involved in this Chris as well this project this time around right there is there is um, you're going to want to know who they are now <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> no, of course I will. Trumpet, we got Dave Prizeman, who has worked with Mick and I since ooh, since the first album, I would have thought, Mick, wasn't it? Yeah, um, early 90s, I guess. Early 90s. We had uh, Roger Beaujolais, who used to be in the um, Chevalier Brothers, who I used to play their single, I Like Them Fat Like That, which was an old <laughs> tune. Mick would tell you it was by. I think it was Lee George. It was, it was probably a Louis Jordan tune originally. Is that a fat um, PH or fat F? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a classic old uh, 1940s R&B kind of big band thing. I'm sure it was Louis Jordan. Yeah, who else played it? Um, Damien Hands. Oh, yeah, Damien Hand on sax from Akasha. Two guitarists, Simon Buffalo from Brand New Heavies. Um, Guitar-wise, Mick suggested someone he plays with all the time, Julian Burdock, who's uh, just amazing, literally Amazing, amazing guitarist. His main thing is blues, but he can do everything. He played the guitar on something else. We just said to him, look, do you know Grant Green? He was like, yeah. I'll tell you his birthday. I'll tell you what he had for lunch. He's, you know, he's one of those. He's kind of, you mention any guitarist on the planet and he can play his licks. He knows everything about him. He just, you know, he was just an absolute joy to work with, who is also going to be playing on the new album, which we can exclusively tell you is called Gumbo Ya Ya. And I can exclusively tell you we're not getting on very very well with it because I'm out sitting in the sun too often. <laughs> Hold and, on, this, uh, is, this is the next album from the two of you. This is the, the reality of the record biz now is if you make an if we fin you know, if we could record an album in a day like, um, you know, sort of, I don't know, the Beatles or whatever used to just go in Abbey Road and go, dong, 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 two minutes at a time, do the whole thing. It would be out in a week. Now it takes you a year because if you want to make an album, you, you are competing with a universal repressing Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in time for Christmas. And that all the record plants, except a few tiny, tiny little in independent ones who mostly do the 45s, are so tied up, you can't make a record. Or you can make a record, but you can't release a record. So we're working on an album now to come out in maybe uh, 18 months or 
two years' time. There's a couple of tracks I want to talk to you about. So first of all, the singles. So let's talk about this. This was a, this was a double A side. Tell me about something else, Nick. Talk, uh, talk, talk me through this one. Well, something else really reflects a lot of the sort of type of records that Chris was playing when he was a very influential DJ in the 80s when he was inventing acid jazz. So it's like a, a, a quite a sort of jazzy, dancey thing. It's a chance for Julian to do his Grant Green bit. I just think, I don't know, it's just a real head nodder to me, you know. Yeah, and then Wiggle Wiggle, flip it over, seven-inch single, flip it over to us. So tell me about that one, Mick. Well, that one's a bit more uh, sort of funky. I think, is that, Chris might correct me here, I think that's Simon on that one, isn't it? That is Simon on that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that one's a bit more in a funk thing, and I, I guess Simon's... On the less jazzy sort of things, he's probably a bit more funky and rocky, which is his kind of bent, I think. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a strong double package, really. The album also has a lovely cover version of How Sweet It Is To Be Loved By You. He talks about this album being more 60s influenced. That's the kind of Marvin Gaye Motown classic that we all know and love. We were talking about, we'd, we'd done a, a track of our own, which was kind of in a Motown-y style. And we were just talking about maybe doing a cover. But if we were we were going to do it, we didn't want to do it like it had been done before. That made sense. That's a song that we both loved. Just messing around on a Wurlitzer with him, it sounded really good. So I was like, well, should we do a vocal? Who can get do a vocal? Look, let's do the instrumental now. We'll think about it. The same with the other track. We were going to do it. But we never did. We never did progress to that. We just, they worked as they were. It was close enough to the original, although we did stick in a little section from another song that didn't exist before. It was close enough, but different enough to kind of feel like we'd done something new with it rather than just let's do a, you know, cover version. We've run, we can't write another song. We've run out of ideas, which obviously we might have done as well. (laughs) (laughs) Come on now. You try writing writing 13 tracks for an album. It's a lot of music. (laughs) It also made sense because a few of the tracks were quite influenced by Junior Walker. I know that song's been done on Motown by Junior Walker, by Marvin Gaye and a few other people, but um, it made sense to go back to the source really as well. Mr. Weller released a seven inch single tail in the last year, which was on Jack White's record label. And that was, I think three junior Walker covers. So there's a little Weller connection there. I mean, you, you guys all love that era. You love all that music from that time, don't you? Yeah. I think we all come at it from a slightly different background and from growing up with different sounds because you know I, I don't think i've bought a 45 first 45 i remember buying was all the reissue of all along the watchtower uh, which was Jimi hendrix three track 1970 got to a number one because they put it out for like i think it was five and eleven pence or, or <laughs> whatever pre-decimal Cheap as chips, and it Jim, Jimi Hendrix got his one and only number one, I think. Mick, didn't he? Was it posthumous? Just yeah, it was. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quick detail: I explained to my kids about Jimi Hendrix the other day, right? So, so there are a load of green parrots where we live, and they're and actually they fly a lot over all over London nowadays. And apparently parakeets. they came they, parakeets. Yeah, yeah, we they, got them here. Yeah, they came from Jimi Hendrix releasing them after some kind of video shoot, apparently, and then they oh, bred. Wow. <laughs> so then, and then they were like, "Who's?" Jimmy Hendrix. Oh, Christ, now I've got to explain all this. <laughs> um, hey, look, and this is really exciting having you two guys, um, not just, I mean, the exclusive on here that there's going to be another album next year or the year after, but that you're already working on. But back to business, out the 17th of June. So it's out this week, folks, uh, wow. which is always wow. really exciting. How does it feel on, when, you know, on, on the eve of an album release? You, I mean, Mick, 
Lord knows how many albums you're on from over the years. That still must be an exciting thing, right? Well, yeah, it is. It's nice. And it's, uh, you know, it's you never take anything for granted. The single's got a really strong reaction, you know, and I think Acid Jazz did very well. I think they had to do a repress, you know, so they're quite pleased. So hopefully if we can reflect the single success with the album, it bodes well, you know. And Chris is a DJ as well. What type of environment is this best suited for in terms of playing? So what, what type of crowd would you need to play this to? Is it an intimate late night evening thing where we're coming down? Is it a party album? Yes. What type of event would you be at to, to give this a play? All of the above. <laughs> um, in the supermarket, in your home. No, it's, it, look, my philosophy has always been to try and make a record that I'd play it, I would have played out myself. We haven't quite managed it with this album, but I know we're going to do with the next one. I love an album like a, a Motown chart busters, like a reggae chart busters. What were they called? Like, like yeah. the t- now, you'd go to a party when you're 16, you'd stick the album on, Every track would get played, bush, bush, bush. You'd just have a dance set in the corner. People would get up and dance. We are even more going to try that with this album. But it's definitely, it's it's sort of relentlessly energetic. Even the mid-tempo stuff is quite up-tempo, really. And some of the tracks are very fast, although not as fast as... We got one on the new album, which is 200 BPM, which Mick's going, I can't play that fast. <laughs> but I know he will. Just, uh, <laughs> you'll be all right with those magic fingers. Yes. Mick. Come on now. Of course, he, of course he will. Mr. Bangs is a runaway train that you've got to jump on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, there's a couple of things I Love want to it. talk to you about before we go. So, Mick, hang on there a second. So, Chris, 30 years now since Above the Clouds, since you worked with Mr. Weller, have you had any yeah. connections with him since? Has, have you, have you cross paths at all well funny enough i spoke to him a few weeks ago because for those of you who don't know i've just become a resident of spain we came out a couple of years ago when uh covid was just kicking off and we had houses family etc at home so we had a lot of things we had to sort out and as soon as it looked like lockdown was coming back i just said look we've got to go back and sort this out and we'll see how we feel so we went back sorted things out came out again and i was house hunting this agent over here took me out started talking you know what are you into football music blah blah he goes oh yeah he goes one of my clients was paul weller i said oh i did a track with him what track above the clouds oh it's one of my favorites so uh i hadn't spoken to paul for at least a couple of years then i just sent him a text i goes i'm just buying a house off your estate agent And he goes, uh, it's a small world. Yeah, he's a nice bloke. So that was just a, a quick, you know. <laughs> I love there it. Was, there was no, will you come produce my new album or, <laughs> or will, you, will you come and sing on my, <laughs> one of my mixed new single? I missed that one, actually, mate. I should have tried that. You should, yeah, try, yeah, um, yeah. should have tried it, but there you go. Next time. <laughs> hey, look, well, there's two final questions I always ask on this podcast as well, Chris. Um, so first one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam. As Mick's still there, it could be the Star Council. This is awkward. Oh, Paul Weller solo. What are you going to go with? Wolves Come Tumbling. Oh, that is a bloody great tune. Actually, no, saying that, it's probably uh, Mixed Blessings. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if Paul was involved in that one much, was he? No, probably not. Um, I think he Mike played does the some hand claps. Okay. Yeah, a washboard. He played the washboard, didn't he, Mick? No, um, Walls Come Tumbling is just a great song. I never, never, ever played it out in my life, but it's just one, if you're ironing or whatever, it comes on the radio. It's got yeah. arrangement, the melody, everything. You don't have to take this crap. You don't have to sit back and relax. It's a bit, I mean, it's weird that these these lyrics and these songs still mean so much 
what, 35 years on, right? It's like, and a bit sad, let's be honest, that it's that not an awful lot has changed in that way, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's surprising, you know, when you're half the age you are, when you put the how and how little things have changed, it, it's quite daunting, really. I mean, things don't change that much. It's, it's a shame. I don't know if it was designed to be prophetic or we had hoped it would be only about the time we were in, but um, times haven't changed as much as people might like you to think, you know. But also, Mick, as a producer, and I've worked with a lot of vocalists and a lot of writers, unless you're writing a Betty Boo song, which is just a different matter. When when it's a proper singer-songwriter or a band or whatever, you write a simple truth that people connect to. That is just so direct that that will, that will I'm not saying it will never change. You know, you, you don't go around going, forsooth, my Lord, anymore. But the basic message, you know, if you're expressing a simple emotion or a simple feeling in life, like Paul does with his songs, that's why it still relates. purpose of this podcast, Chris, is for me to meet amazing people who have had these connections with Mr. Weller over the years and work with him collaborated with him or just super fans themselves but it's really for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career is my one big regret was never getting to interview the man uh, if it happens and we're now episode 99 so Christ knows when it's going to happen if it is going to happen but if it happens what should I ask him ask him about a famous occasion when uh we were finishing the mix on Above the Clouds down as uh, Comfort's Place, which was uh, Buck's Fizzy's studio. And we were up horrendously late. <laughs> so we'd been drinking all day. We'd been down the pub. We had oil. We had grass and a another form of herb, which I can't remember what it was. So we were up late and his most profound moment, Paul's most profound moment that he ever said to me was, Bangsy, do you know what makes a hit single? And I goes, no, mate. He goes, you've got to be able to sing it in the bath. <laughs> there you go. Ask him about that. Not the shower. <laughs> well, no, the, this was, the, the showers weren't so popular in the 90s. So. <laughs> now we've all had hip operations, <laughs> etc., and knee joints done, and the gall knows what. <laughs> There is an unreleased track by Paul Weller, which I have a cassette of. Gangstar Above the Clouds remix. Oh. Ask Paul Weller. What the heck? I had a cassette, which I, I threw all my cassettes away. Duh. All my old DJ sets and everything. Stupid. But there is a gang somewhere, a Gangstar remix of Above the Clouds. Wow. Will it ever come out? Wow. Love it. Chris, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate this. Um, it's been an absolute joy to spend time in your company. Thanks so much. Yeah. Mick, nice one as well, mate. Mick Torbert, before you go, I should add that uh, we're meeting up again in a few weeks' time. So the exhibition in Brighton, Nikki Weller's This Is The Modern World exhibition with a huge big style council section, loads of your stuff that I know you've lent her. Shaney, your wife's been getting involved. and Yeah, she's still in the loft digging stuff out as we speak, actually. Can't wait for this. Can't wait for this. So we've got special Q&A, you and Steve White from the Style Council, 25th of August. I can't wait to see you again. Tell us one of your favourite things that you've dug out from the loft so far, mate. There's a... Been a great search for um, a pantomime horse, and, <laughs> uh, which became uh, a bit of a tradition at the end of end of tours. And Weller used to coordinate it. I think my wife was one end of the horse, and I think then I think there was a lion as well. And um, we think that that may have been Bill Jupiter in the lion because he was the MC at one of our tours, and 
we're trying to work out who's inside this uh, pantomime horse. (laughs) Have you found the pantomime horse itself? No, no. We've got pictures and there's, there's a pantomime lion as well. It's all before the Lion King, of course, and uh, <laughs> got the idea. But, um, yeah, Anne was a great one for that. There was an element of music hall that crept into the final date of any tour. And, um, all right, I've, ju- I've just been handing a note by my assistant. <laughs> Nicky was the tail end of that uh, horse. But there, there were many horses, so this is just, <laughs> just visual evidence of one. My thanks once again to Chris Bangs for joining me on the podcast and cheers to Mick Talbot for popping up too. Back to Business, their new album is released on Friday, June 17th. You'll find all the details in the show notes for this podcast. Just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, there are various ways to show your support. You can buy me a virtual coffee or get some of our new exclusive official merchandise at my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can buy tickets for the live podcast we have coming up. We'll be in Halifax as part of the Paul Weller Day on July 3rd when Paul plays the Peace Hall. Plus, I'll be hosting Q&As with Rick Buckler, Steve White and Mick Talbot in Brighton this summer as part of Nikki Weller's This is the Modern World Exhibition. Details on my website. Number three, you can share a link to the podcast on your social media channels. It all helps to spread the word. You'll find me on social media. Get in touch on Twitter at Weller Fan Pod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Next up on the podcast, episode 100, a very, very, very special episode. Make sure you follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This one is a real, real treat. Episode 100, June 22nd, 2022, on the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.